Hello and welcome to the Still Space Podcast. I'm your host, Executive Coach Mary Lee Gannon, where my guests and I share fun and simple strategies to manage yourself so that you can show up the way you want in work relationships in life and not default to past behaviors that leave you disappointed. The Still Space is where you learn to take an intentional moment to challenge habitual assumptions that hold you back with enlightened truths that boost your genius. We transform drama, resentment, doubt, unmet expectations, and self-sabotage to executive presence, self-control, deep sleep, healthy choices, and more connection with people who matter while it still matters. It's time. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me. First, I have something really special that I can't wait to share with you. Most of you know that I work by day as the CEO of a $31 million organization, and I coach a handful of clients in the evening. Now I have taken the tenets of mindful leadership and put that into a training program so that you can fast track your career leadership while also balancing that with a good night's sleep, healthy eating habits, and close relationships. I call this program Mindful Leader Satisfied Life. Not only will you have the training, you also get one-on-one coaching with me, not a group, one-on-one coaching with me so that we can unravel your personal assumptions that are holding you back. You will no longer be unnoticed, undervalued, and inadequate, feel judged, and that others think that there's something wrong with you and you start thinking there's something wrong with you too because you're getting passed over for promotions, new roles, no longer doing all the things you hear you should be doing. Sigh of relief, right? With only defeat and the fear that failure is in your DNA forever dogging you in the back of your mind. You'll no longer be disconnected from colleagues, friends, and family or following the shoulds that make you feel you're still behind the curve and might even lose everything altogether. No longer frustration about habits that show up in terms of snacking, disjointed relationships, vices, poor sleep. No longer making excuses while not actually getting any closer to high performance. So if you're interested in this program, all you have to do is go to my website, maryleegannon.com. Click on the link on the top that says Coach with Mary Lee. It explains all about the program. Fill out a few questions on the questionnaire so that I know a little bit more about you and I'll reach right out to you and we'll set up a time to talk and we'll get you started. No longer will you have to wake up and say, I missed an opportunity. I wish I had. Please remember that I can only take a few clients at a time and I already have a full book right now. So I'd like to make sure that you're on the list. Head over to maryleegannon.com. Click on Coaching with Mary Lee. Let's get started. This is episode 17 of the Still Space podcast, Unraveling the Devastation of Hate. Today we're going to talk about a difficult subject because most of us don't want to admit that we hate, but we all have and we have been hated by others. And we're going to talk about where that comes from, how to unravel it, how to understand it, and what you can do about it when it's in your own soul as well as when you're feeling it from others. 
We are all on this earth to create meaningful relationships. This is where we feel safe, connected, valued. To do that, we must be able to communicate and not guard our souls. We are more successful at this when we cultivate a curiosity to understand how people think, feel, and behave. This alone will jumpstart your self-awareness. A lack of awareness of how you and others think, feel, and behave will result in failed relationships. When we don't listen, when we don't understand, things start to fall apart. Most conflicts at work and even at home But if you're at work, especially at the executive level, conflicts come from poor communication and misaligned values. And when we see our work in a silo, as if only my department and my work matters, and not aligned with others, we become very turf-oriented and not collaborative. Break down those barriers and your leadership is stronger and more effective. We listen three ways. For the other person to take a breath so that we can be heard with a story of our own. You know, they're talking about something and we're just waiting for them to take a breath so we can get a word in edgewise with what we think is important. Number two, to solve the other person's problem when we haven't even established trust and they likely don't have a reason to care what we think. And number three, that's deep listening, to deeply hear what they have to say without jumping to a solution or turning away at discomfort or apathy, affirming them and being with them in their feelings. Think about the last time somebody had to tell you something difficult, or you were in the presence of someone who was suffering, maybe grieving, and you just don't know what to do, and you... Uh, say, oh, well, if you need anything, call me, or you just brush over it when all they really need to know is that you're there for them and that you care. And that might sound something like this. They're talking and all you're doing is validating their feeling. This must be so difficult. I can't even begin to imagine your level of hurt frustration, despair. I'm here for you and I'd like to take you for coffee on Monday or Tuesday. If that would be okay, I'll call and follow up with you. That's much more empathetic than saying, uh, call me if you need anything, which is just a brush off. So again, we listen three ways. One, to get a word in edgewise. Two, to solve the other person's problem without ever validating that we heard them and understand how they're feeling. And three, that deep listening is to just be with them, reiterate what we heard, and let them know that we're there for them without having to solve their problem. Really important skills in personal relationships and at work. When we deep listen by first being aware and accepting of our own fears, we can more deeply see what the other person needs. We can there name the feeling that they may be feeling, name the feeling that we may be feeling. This is going to be very difficult. I have to go to, whether it's a funeral home or to speak with a friend who may have just been laid off. We're so 
having such a difficult time managing our own emotions that the thought of being there for somebody else is just too overwhelming. And then we do and say things that aren't as supportive or effective for the other person as we could be. And that self-management happens in the still space. That comes when we just take a deep breath. (sighs) How am I feeling in this moment? What's going on with me? Let me sit with that for a moment so that I can understand where my thoughts are and then shift those thoughts to how I can be in service to others. It's a difficult thing to do, but if we can manage ourselves in our own discomfort, then we are more likely to be there for others. It's too difficult otherwise. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Christine just got some bad news. She was just diagnosed with breast cancer. She tells some work friends and Sally immediately cuts in that her cousin had breast cancer and after chemo and radiation was just fine. That's level one listening. You know, just wait for that person to take a breath and insert something because you're uncomfortable that will make you feel better about what you have to share. Lauren tells Christine that there is a new therapy being done at Johns Hopkins and that she'll research the information for her and get it to her. She's problem solving. That's level two listening. Jennifer says, I hear the fear and sadness in your voice. That must be really scary. What is overwhelming you the most right now? I really want to be here for you and I'm listening. Christine explains that she's worried about the treatment side effects and if it will even work. She's worried if her children will have a mother. Jennifer says, I want to go with you for the treatments if that is allowed. I can't fix this, but I'm good at holding hands. That's loving speech. That's caring. That's empathy. That's compassion. Christine smiled. When first hearing that Christine had cancer, Jennifer was anxious and really uncomfortable. Sally and Lauren were really uncomfortable too. Jennifer remembered her aunt dying from cancer. She had to be aware of that feeling so as not to turn away from it and in essence turn away from what her friend needed in the process. So she took a deep breath, found the still space, and was aware of the discomfort unraveling what was behind it. Of course she was struggling in the moment with being afraid that someday she might get cancer too, but in that very instant she was able to appreciate that she was not the one with cancer today and that her friend needed her. This mastery of emotions takes practice and is definitely attainable. The sequence that Jennifer took herself through in the still space to manage herself through this difficult situation can be applied when under fire at work, when nervous about a big presentation, when in a confrontation with a colleague, or in a family drama conversation at home. And why are we talking about this on a day when we're focusing on the devastation of hate? Because if we can't recognize the inner dialogue within ourselves and manage ourselves in a situation, we can't manage 
the negative critical voice that shows up when we hate others. Happy people don't hurt one another. Happy people don't hate other people. And what I want for you is to be able to see when someone is shedding hate your way, they're not happy themselves. And I want you to find in the still space the ability to say, this is a wound that they have, that they are trying to pass off on me in an effort to feel better that actually doesn't work and they won't feel better. They'll feel better for about five seconds. And this is why they have to keep being hateful because it isn't a healing. But I want you to be able to manage yourself when someone sheds hate your way or when you're feeling hateful to be able to go inside yourself and say, I'm very resentful right now. Why am I resentful? Because I'm uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable? Because I'm feeling like I'm not belonging or worthy or fitting in and it makes me feel despair. This is why we learn to deep listen to others so that we can deep listen to our own souls and hear what's going on there for better self-management, self-acceptance, and peace. Here's another example. Don and Mark were arguing about where resources should be spent on their project. Don wanted them for personnel and Mark wanted them for technology. More people are not the answer, said Mark. We can count on technology. You might say Mark was anxious about not getting his way. What other companies have used this technology and what have their results been, asked Don. Telstate used it and they are a multi-million dollar company, replied Mark. You might say that Don was intrigued about finding the right solution. Don said, I don't want to bring any more anxiety to this issue than is necessary. Do you mind if I talk with someone at Telstate and gauge what their challenges and staff needs were in implementation, he asked. We may be able to learn from their experience, Mark agreed. The questions Don will ask Telstate will be far less biased than Mark's because he was much more emotional about it. This way, Don names a feeling to put it at ease and aligns with Mark to come back with recommendations from a resource Mark already put forth as a trusted resource. Don really wanted to argue that just because Telstate used the software and was a successful company did not mean they became a success because of the software. But that would get them nowhere in resolving the issue and more contentious. The way he handled it, Don is now able to learn valuable intel to help make an objective decision that Mark will not be able to argue with because this is his resource. Deep listening is a skill that calls you to be silent in the still space and manage yourself. No need to be heard. No need to solve the problem. You don't need to be right. You want to get it right. You only have a desire to be with this person in this situation for the good of all. The same goes for joy. When someone is happy, be happy with them. No need to draw a pal parallel to your joy. Don't we do that sometimes? Well, they're really happy. Where's mine? No need to interject that the joy may be fleeting to protect them from future disappointment. Oh, I won't, don't want to feel joy too much right now because it's not going to last and that shoe is going to drop anytime soon. That's called foreboding joy and isn't helpful. Don't allow your joy scarcity bias to ruin their moment. It's not about you. It's not about you. Deep listening and loving speech 
are about the other person. And this is a way that you practice your own self-management. And now we're going to get into the heart of the difficult topic of today, and that is the devastation of hate. And shoo, this is a rough one for me. I grew up in a house where my father was a stabilizing influence of love, but it paled in comparison to my mother's hate for just about anybody. It took me a long time to understand that it wasn't personal, but a defense mechanism. My mother, at the age of eight, had to endure the death of her father, and at the time, eight-year-olds were not allowed in a hospital, and her mother and siblings put her in a closet so that she didn't have to wait outside in the car. The hospital was an hour and a half from where they lived, and she witnessed this entire experience from a detached perspective in the closet, and I think it, it really affected her perspective on the rest of her life. It was an injury and a wound that she didn't have the wherewithal to heal from, and it became something that she uh, brought forth in all of her relationships, which were strained at best. When I depersonalized, completely depersonalized what happened with to my mother, not making it about me, allowing it to be about her, I could detach from the contempt that I felt sometimes around her and feel compassion for her, for her desperate loneliness, her fear of abandonment. I could see how what happened to her affected her when I didn't make it about me, when I could understand her. Hate in a person's core shows up at work too. Don't let them make it about you because it isn't. Observe it, understand it, and detach from it. It isn't your hurt. It's their hurt being shed to you. It's not for you to respond. Emotionally intelligent people do not engage with hate and insecurities. It is small. They rise above it. They aim low. You go high. This is when you're able to observe what's going on from a third-party perspective like a fly on the wall and just watch it, not have to respond, react, get emotional. Just observing it like you're watching a movie. Fortunately, insecurity breeds anger, fear, and injury. Insecure people feel others threaten them. And if the insecure person doesn't know how to deal with their feelings of unworthiness, it can turn to hate. Even in ourselves, when we're struggling with our own worthiness and our own place in the world, we can hate too. Hate for feeling uncomfortable, hate for uncertainty, hate for feeling left out, hate for feeling dismissed, hate for not being good enough. Insecurity can bleed hate like a hemorrhage. And hate isn't mutually exclusive. If you hate others, you hate yourself for something too. And that hateful person at work that drives you crazy likely hates themselves far more than they hate you. They just don't know it or how to deal with it. You know a lot better. You can see their hate from a third-party perspective and know that it's not about you. Mean people have an internal barometer that is mean to themselves. 
Hateful people don't feel safe. They behave desperately without self-awareness because their only desire is to feel protected, affirmed, and not alone. Since these are primal needs in life, severely insecure people will take no prisoners in their quest for safety. Sometimes they are so slick at it you don't see the hatred coming. My mother was a good person at heart, yet sadly very insecure. Not knowing what to do with those feelings, she externalized her discomfort in manipulation, divisiveness, and hate. She had zero self-awareness and could not see herself doing this. When she was in her 30s and 40s, coaching and therapy were not the acceptable modalities they are today. Therapy carried stigma. Coaching didn't even exist. Self-awareness was not recognized as a superpower back then either. Back then, the self-regulation tactics I share with you were not apparent. Please understand that when people in older generations grew up, they weren't aware of self-help, personal development, or more modern mindful practices of today. They often don't have the awareness you do, or even know what self-awareness is. Often, they don't trust their ability to change see a reason to change, or even know how to change. We have to be compassionate to the limited resources they had available then. Be forgiving, be a mentor, be a teacher. Later in life, when I understood my mom's childhood experience of having been marginalized into that hospital room closet at the age of eight, I developed understanding and compassion for her acts of desperation. I found out this story by sitting down and talking with her about her past. As she's getting older, I said I wanted to understand the stories of her youth. And this is when I came to understand this. She must have felt so scared and alone in that closet. I had to put myself in her skin. On the ride home in the car after her father's death, family members were so consumed in their own grief and surprise because he wasn't supposed to die, he had just had stomach surgery. None of them thought to nurture or check in with her. She was invisible. The rest of her life, she fought to be visible. My mom was never able to heal that wound that repeatedly inflicted itself on her for the rest of her life. Sadly, she couldn't see this because she had very little self-awareness. This is why I work so heavily with my clients and with you on this podcast on building your self-awareness so that you can have the ability to self-regulate and have self-acceptance, which gives you power and peace. Mom described her father's death like it was a movie, no emotion, like she was just sitting there watching it because emotionally, in that moment, she shut down. I can't even imagine how desperate she must have felt on that day. She didn't see how she had been neglected or marginalized. She just didn't see it. As a child, I didn't know that everyone's mother wasn't like my mom. Her anger and... Ridiculous perspectives were normalized in our house. As an adolescent, I was simply afraid of her. As an adult, I was sad for the lack of steadfastness and nurturing that I missed. It was decades later when my son pointed out that there was a lot of hate in his childhood, not only from his grandmother, but in our house, between his father and his family, against me, and vice versa, 
through our divorce that I heard a wake-up call. He pointed out that he steps away anytime he feels hateful energy today. I found that for a young man in his 20s to be astoundingly powerful. I was so proud of him. Great coping skill, but it made me cringe to hear this. Amazing that he found the still space in his 20s, but made me very sad nonetheless. I own my part in his distaste for hate. I had learned the devastation of hate very well. Anger and hate go hand in hand. They carry with them the art of blaming, such a disempowering perspective. Victimizing, very disempowering perspective. Resentment, hatred, blaming, they're paralyzing. My father taught me peace and humor. He found his still space in our living room where he would sit and listen to jazz every night after dinner. He got involved with our church. He smiled often. He was calm unless he was watching a Steelers football game. He was solid, caring for everyone. He volunteered, giving dental exams in poor school districts and leading professional organizations on a state level. Service was his mindful practice. Sometimes I wish he had more self-help skills to have managed my mother better. But in his own way, he was doing the best he could. He didn't know how to do that. Back then, nobody did. Most people in his generation just went along. His superpower was calm, and I learned that early on. Jazz and service were his way of settling the storm for himself and our home. The lighthouse never falls into the water during a storm. He was the lighthouse. He never yelled or argued. He was always the lighthouse. I didn't feel safe during my divorce and reverted to the only coping strategy I had seen, hate. I did not at all feel safe in my financial independence, my ability to support my children, my aptitude to feel and give love, in my worthiness as a person. I was angry that we had to survive on public assistance, were homeless and without an automobile. I was angry at having to do everything myself. So I responded to hate with hate. I was constantly on the defense, fighting in court for any morsel of support I could get for my children who were wearing each other's shoes and on free lunch at school. After having lived what two people on the outside could have been construed as the country club life. I had no idea if I was going to be able to support my children or not. I certainly had conviction, but that was not a plan. I was angry that their father only had to take care of himself because he was too busy playing on poor, Your Honor. Except for the $269 a week in support, he provided the five of us, which did not, as you can imagine, even cover our food. He vacationed internationally, played golf at the country club, but we were poor, devastatingly poor. I felt like a victim, abandoned and powerless, probably a lot like my mom had felt. I felt like it was hard enough being a single parent of four children under seven, one with a developmental disability, let alone have to fight for their food and clothing too. 
Yes, I was angry. I was hateful toward him. I felt wronged. I was exhausted and angry for having to pick up the pieces for his irresponsibility. I felt victimized, like I was living a Francis Ford Coppola movie. You just don't leave the Italian family. And all the while I focused on hate, I drew hate my way. I let defending against my ex-husband's and his family's hate be my focus. Instead of being with the uncertainty of my situation and focusing on my strengths with faith in myself, from the calmness I learned from my dad, I got caught up in winning the hate game. I needed to be right more than I wanted to get it right. Don't fight hate with hate. You will likely lose because hateful people will be more hateful than you can be. The hateful have been mastering their craft much longer than you have, and they have no code of honor. The emptiness inside them echoes against the chambers of barren hearts. Spewing hate only fills those chambers for a moment. The tide quickly recedes, exposing the indefinite hollowness they constantly seek to fill with no avail. Empty again. Emotions are not mutually exclusive. When I was consumed with hate, I found myself hateful and void of happiness. I remember yelling at someone who cut me off in the drive through line at a fast food restaurant. I can still see myself sitting in that line afterward, questioning how I could get so upset about something so trivial. Hate breeds more hate. It is a red flag that something is unresolved and needs to be released to make room for acceptance. I regained my power with forgiveness and the three things that we always talk about. Number one, self-awareness, which leads to the ability to number two, self-regulate, which leads to number three, self-acceptance. I first learned what it is to forgive when I forgave my ex-husband and his family. My ex-husband passed away when my children were teenagers. All I could think about was how sad it must be to be dying and not have had a close relationship with your own children. I know he had regret. He had good in his soul. He had a lot of unrest, too. I was sad for him. I was sad for the nurturing he didn't receive as he was growing up. I was sad for him and his children. It was sad all around. Dealing with his family was exceedingly difficult after his death. Another wound being passed on, trying to be passed on. Who would try to divide children who just lost their father against their only living parent? We talk about boundaries. I learned to have compassion for people who don't know what they are because they just aren't happy in their own skin. Forgiveness was a long time coming for me especially for them. I realized it before I remarried. It opened the door of my heart for love. After that, I learned to forgive my mother and others for whom I had expectations. Expectations lead to unmet expectations. I saw my mom's goodness, her sense of humor, and kind little girl soul. 
underneath all of the stubbornness. Why did I pursue forgiveness when it came to hate? For the reason my son pointed out, hate is palpable, and people want to get away from that energy of hate. It wasn't drawing people to me, it was propelling them away. I much more value drawing people to me than driving them away. I just wasn't willing to carry around all that anger anymore. It takes a lot of anger to be hateful. As a result, I made closer friends, I have closer relationships, got better jobs, made space to give and receive kindness, and was just plain happier when I put down my guard, when I was vulnerable enough to say, I feel uncomfortable here, I feel rejected here. I was more human and people liked me more, and I had a lot more fun. How did I learn to stop hating and forgive? I released hate for love. I trained myself with self-awareness to see how hatred was showing up in my life, affected my own behavior that I had to own, and how it did the same in others. Then I self-regulated when I was about to say something too directly or do something rash. I just didn't do it. I'd just be very still in the still space, do nothing, but get curious to what was behind my or another person's anger or behavior. Eventually, the knee-jerk inclination to speak with judgment, to speak out, to be angry, softened. The harsh feelings passed. That deep breath that I held for just a few seconds allowed that feeling to flow through me. It didn't work all the time at first, but eventually it did. I told myself I didn't have to defend myself to prove myself any longer. I was fine. Imagine there is a sign that hangs on your mirror that you see every morning that says, Proven! Just by being alive, you have already proven that you belong and are worthy to thrive in this world. Doubt that no more. You are proven. At work, people who are hateful can temper it most of the time, but it will undoubtedly come out when they are blindsided, when they feel judged, when they feel eclipsed by someone else. That becomes an injury. They don't feel safe. Their reaction ends up being an overreaction that needs self-regulation. And let me just give you a little tip here about having to report to somebody that's very angry and unpredictable, stay off their radar screen. Let them know that you have their back. You know, I heard you say at the last meeting that you want this to happen, so I wanted to give you some information on this, blah, 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 blah. Let them know you have their back. Let them know they can trust you and stop looking to them for any affirmation. They don't have it to give you. If you're needy for their affirmation, they will have you by your throat and you will constantly feel that you don't measure up. Do not be looking for affirmation from them. Make sure they know that you have their back and only go to them when you're reporting on something or you have a question to ask them with an A or B choice. Don't expect them to create anything, to come up with ideas, to tell you how to solve a problem. You give them two choices, and busy people want to make choices they don't want to create. If you overreact at work, there might be something that you want to get more curious about. Lean in and just be with that feeling. 
What is it trying to teach you? Ask questions to help you understand what needs to be released. Let no person or situation bring you low enough to hate. I want to say that again. Let no person or situation bring you low enough to hate because it just affects you. In hate, you are not in your natural state. You are compromised. You can't think clearly or execute openly and effectively in hate. You're too emotional. Just be still a moment in the still space. Ask yourself, what do I need to release here? It takes a lot of energy to be hateful. Bottom line, hate is just not worth it. Wishing you the calmness of your own self-awareness in the still space to be able to self-regulate enough that you can remind yourself that you're awesome, that you have self-acceptance because you are amazing just the way you are. I'm glad you were with me today and I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me.